I want to echo the words of Dean Still this morning and say thank you to all of you who have who joined me in worship. Jonathan, Samuel, Joy, Kingsley, and Catherine are all students here at Truett, students that I have had the privilege of teaching and um, coming to know and love. And I will say that they are a representation of the hope of the church. I really believe that about all of you, and um, uh, it is a deep privilege to walk life with you. So this morning, the passage from Nehemiah that Joy read for us as we stood, like the people of God stood when Ezra read the scriptures so many years ago, this scene actually comes at the end of a story, reading this passage and how the people of God gathered to read the law of Moses without reading the events that come before it is a bit like pulling off a novel from the bookshelf and opening up the last page to see if it's a good book. We can't do that, at least not this morning. So why don't we gather together around a story? Let me introduce you, if you don't quite remember, to how Nehemiah fits in the great tectonics of our scriptures and how he finds his way into the story of Jerusalem. When we first encounter him, he is the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, living in the capital of Susa. He is located at the very center of power, and yet he's not very powerful. He is surrounded daily by privilege, but he doesn't really lead a privileged life. He pours wine. He brings wine. He takes wine. He greets the king with wine. Every day, he is far from home, experiencing the intimacy of daily life with power, and yet a stranger in a strange land. Our particular story begins with a conversation. When Nehemiah's brother and some friends come to visit him, to catch up, to fill each other in with what's going on in the world and what's going on back home in Jerusalem, eagerly Nehemiah asks for news. Brothers and sisters, the news is not good. Jerusalem has been sacked. The disastrous events of 587 BC, which included the destruction of the temple, the end of the Davidic monarchy, and Israel as a political entity, all that had already occurred. But on this particular day, Nehemiah's brothers inform him that the condition in Jerusalem is dire. The remnant who have survived are in great distress. The wall of Jerusalem is nothing but rubble and ash. When Nehemiah hears these words, he sits on the ground and he weeps for days. He goes to God in prayer. Day and night, he fasts, he mourns, he laments. What does this grief look like? This grief that Nehemiah bore in the loss of Jerusalem. 
What exactly did Jerusalem mean to the cupbearer of the king? The narrative in the scripture suggests a story of the loss of a Jerusalem as told by a man of Jerusalem. More than cultural heritage or pedigree, this was a man who missed home. I, could, I suspect that in those days of lament, he could see with his mind's eyes the streets of Jerusalem, not charred and turned to ash, but rather with trees and gardens, the joy of community, vibrant and strong. I suspect that Nehemiah could live a thousand days of neighborly walks, admiring the waters of the pools, all the gardens, listening to familiar birds, smelling familiar smells of supper, wafting from open windows, chatter, the clattering of pots and pans mixed with laughter, front herb gardens with flowers and bees, fireflies, forever Jerusalem was home. He was part of something bigger than him. His parents, his grandparents, long lines of grandmothers calling from the past, his people buried. Last week, Reverend Dr. Delvin Atchison reminded us to remember our bones. I think that's a great name. I wish I had a name like that. Reverend Dr. Delvin Atchison. <laughs> He called us to remember our bones, and this is what Nehemiah did. And now here he was, homesick for a home that no longer existed. Rubble so thick, a horse couldn't pass through the streets. Nehemiah prays. He prays to God on behalf of the community who are suffering in the rubble. He calls on God. He confesses their sin. We have acted very corruptly, scripture says, he said. We have not kept the commandments. We have not kept the statutes. We have not kept the ordinances. In his prayers, he calls out to God, and Nehemiah reminds God of God's own words. You told us you would scatter us if we did not keep your commands. Fine. But you also told us that if we returned to you and kept your commandments, you would gather us back together and bring us to the place that you have chosen for us, home. Time passed, but Nehemiah's grief didn't. One day, while bringing wine to the king, the king finally had had it. He said, Nehemiah, why are you so downcast? You are clearly not sick, but I'm tired of this sad face. What's wrong? And in fear and trepidation, Nehemiah answers. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father and mother's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Well, Nehemiah, what do you want to do about it? The king asks. I want to rebuild it. <laughs> Rather than laughing at such an audacious vision, 
The king instead says, well, what do you need? And Nehemiah, the cupbearer, suddenly finds himself on his way to Jerusalem with letters from the king to make sure that the governors in neighboring regions didn't bother him. A free pass to the king's forest where he could cut down any tree he needed to build a new wall for Jerusalem. Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, allowed to come home. You can imagine how the story's going to go, right? Nehemiah, he will rebuild. The scripture is simple here. He gets to Jerusalem. He says, let us arise and build. And the people put their hands to good work. Nehemiah builds out of rubble. That's a good story. But that is not the full story. The full story is found in the question, how? How was the wall rebuilt? How did Nehemiah do this? You see, we humans, we love to build. We talk about the generation after World War II as being the builder generation, but we all love to build. We build our homes, unless we're in Reagan, and then we fix them up. We build CVs. We build Instagram brands, so I'm told. We build retirement portfolios. We build public policies. We build Supreme Courts and political parties. We build nations. We all want security. And building helps us feel secure. We all want walls of protection so that we can sleep in peace at night and watch our children play without fear. We mothers want to send our babies out into the streets, trusting they will make it home at the end of the day. We all build toward this. The question is, in our building, do we build toward life or do we build toward death? The ways of death entail building walls that keep you safe while keeping others out as they suffer. Nehemiah rejected this mentality. He could have stepped in to build toward death, swooping in now that the price was right, build a little collateral for himself, use his position, not of power, but near power, to carve out a little niche for himself. But that is not. What Nehemiah did, he refused the old game. Nehemiah chose life. And in his choosing the way of life, the remnant of Israel itself was remade. He wants you to know their names. The people of Jerusalem. The ones who were ready to put their hands to work. We learn that the high priest, and here we go into the Old Testament genealogy, so bear with me. Elijah, with his priests, rebuilt the sheep gate and consecrated and hung its doors. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. We learn the goldsmiths gathered together to repair the wall along with the perfumer Hananiah. They, they, we are informed, repaired this or the wall as far as the broad wall. Melchizedek repaired a section of the wall as well as the tower of furnaces. 
And next to him, the daughters of Shalom rolled up their sleeves and cleaned off the ash-drenched stones and built a large portion, we are told, of the wall. The list continues. Like, if you were calling home to Grandma in your hometown and she's telling you all the goings-ons, Baruch zealously made repairs. We can only wonder what that looked like. From the angle to the doorway of old Eliashib, the high priest. And even the bookish priests above the horse gate put down their studies and dug their hands in the dirt and carried out repairs, each in front of his own house. What compels them? This was a despairing scene. What compelled them to rebuild as enemies gathered? They were fragile. They did not wait until they had the privilege of power. In fact, their rebuilding itself made them once again targets of destruction and death. Their enemies began to notice their work. Largely ignored before, now they were more vulnerable than ever. This task, Insurmountable for one person alone was being accomplished. Side by side, men and even women hauled their stones toward a new life. As the work unfolds, as the wall is slowly built, other things are also being rebuilt. Nehemiah hears from those who labor, he hears anxiety. Some are in debt to their brothers and sisters. They were lands that no longer belongs to them. How, they wonder, can we be part of the community of wall builders? Is this wall that we're building only going to be the boundary from which we are cast out when we meet our full financial ruin? And Nehemiah, upon hearing this, turns to the new landowners and accuses them of usury against his brothers and sisters. Give them back their fields, he says. Give them back their vineyards, their olive groves. Do not take what should not belong to you. This is not how we built. The oppressed became the oppressor, and Nehemiah was not having it. We will give it back, and we will require nothing of them. We will do exactly as you say. The people of Jerusalem are all in. Stone by stone, they built their wall, and stone by stone, they were rebuilt with each other. So, Nehemiah tells us, we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined from the people having money to work. They did not choose fear. They did not choose cynicism. They did not choose despair. They built for life, not preservation of life, but fullness of life. And when the wall was built, they gathered. They gathered, as scripture says, as one body. They gathered at the water gate. And there they received the living water of scripture. The scribe Ezra opens it. Ezra stood, and so the people stood, and he read to the people, now made one, the law of Moses. Ezra read it to women, to children, to men alike. It was a day for feast-making. It was to be a day of holy worship, 
and joy and singing. But this is not what the people did. The people of God now made one wept. They wept for the lost time. They wept for the years spent building toward death. In the sweet words of scripture, the God of Israel, who promised not to forsake them, the God who loved them so much he gave them boundaries and borders within which to live and flourish, was made manifest. They wept in light of their shortcomings. They wept for the way of life that they were just beginning to taste. They wept for the journey that they desired to continue with their God, who walked with their mothers and fathers day and night in the desert. And they wept for the truth now revealed. That wall of stone was not their strength. The life they lived as they gathered at the center around the word of God, this was their strength. This was their way. This was their life. Ezra, the scribe, stopped their tears. This is not a day to mourn, he said. This is a day to rejoice. Brothers and sisters, you built toward life. Now live it. Embrace it. Taste it. Stop and enjoy it. Give thanks. This is where your strength lies in the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah, the people of Jerusalem, they are a foretaste of the essential nature of the church. In Corinthians, Paul reminds us we are one body, many parts. Our strength doesn't come from power, it doesn't come from privilege over others, but from the life bound together in God. This is our joy. The pandemic of this past year has taught us anything. It is that we lead lives dependent upon one another. The well-being of our neighbors matters to us. If the woman at the grocery store or my daughter's teacher can't stay home when they are sick, I am at risk. To recognize this is not a curse. It's not something to overcome. It is a gracious testimony of the God we claim to worship. The God who refuses the lie that we lead lives invulnerable to others. The boundaries and borders of a life well lived is not a perimeter wall. Our boundary is the center of creation, the word of the living God. In the midst of these days that are challenging, to say the least, and on the verge of despair, what we should fear more than anything is that we will remain the same. We should fear is our unwillingness to be vulnerable, our desire to be to lead privileged lives that are not dependent on our neighbor. It is only in this joining that we come to God. It is through and in His body that we come to count encounter not only one another but God Himself. Any other way is a lie. 
in the face of despair, brothers and sisters, let us not lose hope. We must do our part, not for gain, not for wealth, not for prestige, or even necessarily safety. We are invited into Christ's body. We are called to be his body. We are called to pick up our stones. Maybe you are a priest with one that attacks that which is right in front of you in your backyard. Maybe you are a daughter joining your sisters, polishing ash-covered stone and bringing it back to life. Whatever it is, we face our despair. We do not turn away. We carry our burden, and we hear the cries of our brothers and sisters who do not turn our back. And through our joining, we are made vulnerable to joy. And this is our strength. Amen.